Thanks for listening to the Secular Hubcast, a podcast made possible through a grant from the American Humanist Association. This show is a project of the Secular Hub, a Denver nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting community, altruism, reason, and education across the diverse secular community of the Front Range region. For more information and to become a member, visit secularhub.org. Welcome to the Secular Hubcast. This is Jesse doing a quick introduction for the Science Talk episode. On the second Saturday of every month, the Secular Hub hosts special guest speakers who are usually either authors or professors or usually both, but someone from the world of academia who has been doing research or is particularly knowledgeable in some way, and they come to the Hub, spend time with the community, and they do a presentation or talk on the subject of their expertise. Science talks are really a great way for the community to learn one-on-one from someone in a fun and casual environment where you can interact and engage with the specialist and find out and learn as much as you can. At the beginning of the episode, you'll hear from a couple of the volunteers who are on that committee that puts these events together. And at the Hub, we're really lucky to have such dedicated and well-connected people who are able to get such excellent guests. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Ev. Welcome to everybody. Is this working? Yeah. How many people are here for the first time? Just a few. That's good. Welcome to you, and we hope to see you again. For those of you who are not members, or dues-paying members of the Hub, just want to say that groups like this and all the programs and the rent for this facility is supported by membership dues. So if you want to on your way out, you can drop a little contribution in that box. It would be very much appreciated. And would you remember to turn your cell phones off, please? We have uh, science programs every month, usually the second Saturday. We moved it today from Saturday to Sunday because we had a fundraising dinner last night. But Clyde Zadens, who is a professor emeritus of physics and has been the chair of the physics department at CU Denver, is our events, I'm the events chair, but he it takes care of all the science programs and he is just terrific because he knows all kinds of wonderful people that he invites to give our programs to. So keep an eye out. They're all always posted on Meetup on our website. So if you're interested in science, I encourage you to look and come to our next one, which will be in December. So Clyde, I'm going to turn this over to you so you can introduce our speaker. We're very fortunate tonight to have Dr. John F. Hoffecker, who is at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. The title of his talk is The Global Dispersal of Homo Sapiens and the Archaeology of Computational Complexity. That's a fantastic title. Thank you for that. Uh, he got his Bachelor's of Arts at Yale University, his Master of Arts at the University of Alaska, and his PhD at the University of Chicago. He worked at Argonne National Laboratories, and much of his research is on early humans in Eastern Europe and Northwest Alaska. Dr. Hoffecker.
I'm going to cover uh, three main points in this talk. First of all, I'm going to begin with the observation that the earliest evidence that we have for mechanical technology, uh, artifacts and devices with moving parts, as well as organizationally complex technology, that is technology that's hierarchically complex and has components with subcomponents and so forth, that the earliest evidence for this, this complex technology coincides with the evidence of the dispersal of modern humans, Homo sapiens, out of Africa about 60,000 years ago, maybe slightly earlier than that. And uh, that's, that's us, basically. We're all, we're all, we represent one or two of the various lineages that migrated out of Africa, uh, or if you're modern African, you're one of the original African lineages. Um, and um, it is a subset, as we will see, of anatomically modern humans, um, the genus and species Homo sapiens. This is actually a larger, a larger set of of, um, of humans, of former humans, of fossil humans. The second point I will make is that this complex technology, the mechanical technology, as well as some of the hierarchically complex technology, was a prerequisite, was I think essential for the invasion, successful settlement of those areas, those very large areas that were settled when our immediate ancestors moved out of Africa and began to colonize the entire world, uh, such as Siberia, uh, also Australia, which was reached by boat, and the islands, uh, some of the islands in the southern Pacific, and being able to uh, live, to settle, to live successfully in places like Siberia and the Arctic also opened up Beringia, the Bering Land Bridge, and opened up the Americas for the first time. And so we became uh, the first modern humans, uh, became the first humans to settle um, the Americas, uh, as well as these other places. And that, I, I will argue that that is due entirely to our ability to make um, these very complex artifacts and devices. And then the final point I will make is that the increased computational complexity that underlies the design of such artifacts is the most appropriate measure of the increase in complexity that takes place when modern humans leave Africa and settle in all these places and use all this complex technology. Um, there are a number of different potential measures of complexity that one can apply to technology, to artifacts, so forth. We'll run through them. But I'm going to make the argument that it's the design process, the complexity of the design process, which shows the most dramatic increase, implied increase, when we see this jump, this quant what I think is a quantum jump in the computational complexity of, 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 of the design of artifacts. So anyway, those are the main points. Um, so we start then with the, the global dispersal of modern humans with ourselves. This is a map that Spencer Wells did about 10 years ago for National Geographic, or they did it for him. And it shows the, uh, the major maternal, or the, the female lineages, and the major paternal lineages um, based, this was originally based on the analysis of um, mitochondrial DNA and Y, and y chromosome, non-recombining Y chromosome DNA in living people around the world. And now, as we will see, um, it's been ground-truthed by dated uh, skeletal remains of humans in various parts of the world, mostly in the north here, where where the where the collagen preserves and the DNA can is still recoverable from the remains, and that has helped us to ground truth um, our original assumptions about when the major lineages diverges and when they diverge and when they moved into various parts of the world as part of this global dispersal. 
so we start with the uh, fossil record of, of anatomically modern humans in Africa. Um, this One of the things about this field, the study of mo modern human evolution and the dispersal of modern humans, is that it's an incredibly fast-moving field. And there have been major developments within the last few months and even more important developments within the last couple of years. And we've learned just quite recently, since uh, 2017, that uh, the earliest anatomically modern human fossils we have um, are, they're about, they're about twice as old as we had thought before 2017. They date to about 300,000 years ago in Morocco at a site named uh, Jebel Hood. I had a book on modern humans that was in press in the summer of 2017. And I was starting to go through the galley proofs when this paper hit uh, in Nature with the new dates on that. So I contacted uh, my editor, my publisher, and said, "I have if I, I, we can't publish this book with these dates, they're off by 50, you know, by 100 percent. So I, you know, I have to I have to add this to the to the book. So after reluct somewhat reluctantly, the publisher agreed, and the book was delayed for several months while we made this change. Um, but anyway, that's so that's one of these dramatic recent developments." There are actually fossils assigned to modern humans that are uh, 300,000 years or, or somewhat younger uh, all over Africa. It appears that anatomically modern humans are spread throughout the continent. They're not just coming from East Africa or South Africa as uh, we thought at one time, but it's continent-wide. And of course, some of them even show up outside Africa in the Levant and elsewhere, as we'll see. Modern humans are defined anatomically on the basis of a number of traits that mostly um, have to do with the, with the skull, with the cranium, and also with the, the maxilla and the, the mandible. Above all, what we see is a, a, a dramatic change in the shape of the skull. Our skull has this kind of globular shape to it. Um, the parietals expand outward. Um, the, uh, the, the frontal bone, bone acquires this, this kind of vertical, this steep vertical angle. The face is then retracted more or less under the brain case. Uh, as well as the jaw, as you know, in, in an ape skull or monkey skull, the jaws project out. They're prognathic, right? They, they project out away from the, from the brain case. But that's not the case with modern humans. And we also we have certain other little characteristics like the development of a mental eminence or a chin or whatever. And there are a couple of uh, postcranial characteristics, but the main ones are, uh, are, are cranial. The sample in Africa of modern humans is highly diverse. Uh, it turns out that these, these fossil localities that we're looking at here um, in South, South Africa, East Africa, North Africa, are filled with fossils that um, are lacking some of these, some or many of these characteristics that we use to define modern humans. Um, there are uh, many of these, many of the uh, modern human or so-called modern human specimens uh, contain uh, the so-called uh, archaic characteristics. Um, they don't have a chin. And they don't—they don't have expanded parietal, so they—or they have a large brow ridge or whatever, rather than the than the, the steep vertical frontal bone. And there are arguments going on as to whether or not we can really include all of these fossils in the formal definition of anatomically modern humans. So it's an ongoing issue. It's an ongoing problem. Um, this is from a, a paper in Nature from just a couple of years ago by Chris Stringer, who's probably the leading expert on the the anatomical issues, anyway, relating to modern human evolution. And Stringer one point pointed out some years ago, in fact, Stringer is one of the original authors of the idea that modern humans evolved in Africa and then dispersed throughout the world. That was, that was, that was first proposed in the early 80s when we began to get very early dates on modern human fossils out of Africa, dates that considerably preceded the dates we had for modern human fossils in, in Asia and in, uh, in Europe. 
And uh, at the time, uh, Stringer was famous for making the comment uh, because we were having this 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 um, ferocious argument over you know these anatomical characteristics and you know what really is a modern human, what isn't. And Stringer pointed out that if we you know if we can't define ourselves uh, anatomically, then you know the rest of the fossil record is just hopeless. And then we also have the comp we have a further complication in that we have this this bizarre this fossil Homo naledae. Uh, which has turned up in South Africa a few years ago. And this was originally believed to be, it's, I mean, it doesn't look modern at all, as you can see here. Um, this was originally believed to be hundreds of thousands of years old and, and have nothing to do with modern human evolution. But it's been redated now. It's less than 300,000 years ago. So it's obviously, it was a contemporaneous um, with uh, at least er the earlier group of uh, anatomically modern humans in Africa. And uh, it just doesn't seem to belong at all. Um, I guess what this says is that um, that the picture of human evolution in Africa 300,000 or even 100,000 years ago was very complex. And it's most likely that we are just directly descended from some sort of subset uh, of this highly diverse uh, population that more or less fits into the anatomical definition of Homo sapiens, which prob probably most of this population, most of this group of populations or mega population does not represent our immediate ancestors. And that certainly applies to Homo naledae. And there's also new genetic evidence for a relatively late uh, introgression, that is a, an infusion of genes from some completely strange character, someone who's not closely related to modern humans at all, into the modern human genome in Africa at some point, uh, maybe as late as you know, like 10,000 years ago. Um, and that's just the genetic evidence. Okay, of all the features that we've talked about, actually we haven't talked about this one feature. It was, it's a feature that's, um, that was picked up in the analysis of some of those fossils from Jebler Hood that we mentioned, the 300,000 year old dated fossils. It's evidence um, from the teeth for a, what is essentially a modern pattern of growth and development. Um, we develop, humans develop, our childhood is extremely long and extended. Lengthy, right? And then now kids don't even leave the home, right? When they reach thirty, um, but uh, it's it's a very striking characteristic um, that our growth and development is extremely slow. We have this delayed maturation. We don't see this pattern in earlier humans. If we look at humans, if we look at if we look at human remains from you know say a million years ago, Homo erectus or whatever. Um, we see something much closer to the modern ape pattern, which is very rapid, very felt relatively rapid growth. Um, the reason why I think this is so important is because we know that there's a critical learning period for language. Okay, we have a few cases, not many fortunately, but we have a few examples of children who were somehow denied exposure to, to language. There's a famous case from California, Genie, but there are a number of others. And they go back to, there, was, there were cases that were stumbled across like in the 1700s. Children who were who were denied exposure to language until you know they were 12, 13, until they reached puberty, and who were then unable to learn fully syntactic language. They could speak a simple form of language, right? They could string together nouns and verbs and things, but they couldn't they couldn't speak complex sentences with phrases within phrases and all that kind of thing. Um, so if you don't have this uh, extended Growth period here. If you're if you're reaching puberty here at a much earlier age, obviously you're you're not going to you're either going to greatly shorten or eliminate altogether this critical learning period. So it's um, 
uh, I think is potentially a very important characteristic, maybe it's the most important characteristic. I will come back to this near the end here. Okay, now, there actually are several dispersals out of Africa by modern humans. For a long time, we thought there was only just, we, we, we thought there were only two. There is the dispersal that takes place around 60,000 years ago, which is all the modern lineages, all our immediate ancestors. And then there's this evidence that we've known of for a long time, that there was an earlier dispersal, about 120,000 years ago, into the Levant, into the sort of the front doorstep of Africa, not very far, right? Not very far out of Africa, by, by a, 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 an archaic-looking version of modern humans, okay? They're technically, they're classified as modern humans, but they've got a number of these archaic characteristics that I mentioned before, you know, like the, heavy, the lack of a chin and the heavy brow ridges and that kind of thing. We now know that there were actually, there, there may have been a couple of earlier dispersals preceding that also. None of these earlier dispersals appear to have gotten very far. We have, as I said, evidence for this dispersal about 120,000 years ago in the Levant. That also applies to uh, this earlier dispersal um, that's thought to be thought to have taken place about 200,000 years ago. As far as we can see, um, these folks didn't get much further than the Levant. During this dispersal that took place like around 100,000 years ago, there's some evidence that modern humans may have reached parts of southern Asia. That's highly controversial, and it, at least from, from where I sit, it's just impossible to, to resolve this issue one way or another at this point with the existing data. But I have a number of colleagues who passionately believe that modern humans are, yeah, they're running all over southern Asia, you know, 100,000 years ago. So we'll, you know, we'll just have to work that out. But here's the main point I want to make here. It's only this dispersal that starts at about 60,000 years ago, like basically us, that reaches all these places that had never been settled by earlier humans. These places like Siberia, the Arctic, also Australia, the islands, and ultimately the Americas. Um, so that's an important distinction between this, our dispersal and the dispersal of our, um, you know, more remote relatives that are still classified as, as anatomically modern humans. And as, as I said, uh, you know, undoubtedly we're, we're talking about a subset of, of, of modern humans here, of Homo sapiens, that made this, um, this dramatic dispersal 60,000 years ago, that probably also applies to the earlier dispersals, I would assume, that it's some subset of, you know, coming out of North Africa or somewhere like that, but we don't really know. And then, as I've been saying, the, the once we have this global dispersal 60,000 years ago, it's it's global. It's okay, we, people go into these places there that had not only excluded earlier humans, but in many cases, you know, any form of primate. To me, you know, we don't have any prosimians in the Arctic or anything like that. So it's a very dramatic change for our, not just our species and our, you know, the, our family, the hominid subfamily or hominid family, but for the entire, entire primate order. So I said, we have, we, we started learning some time ago that we had fossils out of Africa that are dated to uh, much younger than the, 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 the fossils in Africa. So that's, that was sort of the initial, that was the original basis of assuming that modern humans are coming out of Africa or evolving in Africa and then moving out of Africa. And we have, we've gradually, we've been filling this in over the years here. We have, this is a, a new skull from Israel, from Manic Cave, that was reported just a few years ago. It's dated to about 55,000 years. That's one of the earliest non-African remains. We have a skull in southern China, Lujiang, which for years has been um, dated to more than 50,000 years ago. Their dates of like as early as like 67,000. It's somewhat controversial, but I, I don't have a problem with them. It still fits into the sort of larger picture here. And then we have fossils, that, uh, the human fossils that are much younger. We have a, a tibia here from, uh, from Western Siberia. It's about 45,000. We also got a complete genome out of that, which we'll mention later. Early fossils in Europe, about 45,000. 
Uh, and then, of course, in the Americas, much younger, um, less than, than 15,000, more or less. In Australia, we have um, stuff that's going back. But it looks like people are in Australia at least 50,000 years ago, maybe earlier. That, that's another very controversial subject. Um, but it's, it, but it's certainly, it's modern humans. Nobody else gets there. You have to cross uh, about 70 kilometers of open water to reach Australia, even, even at times in the past when a sea level was at, at different levels and, and um, the, um, the, the distances has changed, of course, over time. Even, even with the, the shortest crossing would have been at least about 70 kilometers. So the assumption is, is that it required more than just you know, a, a couple of logs strung together or something like that. We're talking about navigable watercraft here. Now, we mentioned about the, uh, the lineages here. So I said the orange ones here are the maternal lineages based on the uh, mitochondrial DNA, and the blue ones are uh, maternal lineages. I've been filling this in over the years. Um, I started off, I just, had a, you know, I just had a few of these, uh, and then I've been filling them in gradually. Um, one of the most dramatic additions is just this year, we got um, whole genome analyses out of two teeth, two males, not closely related, from the Yana River sites, okay? These are the oldest sites in the Arctic. Uh, they're at about 70 degrees latitude north. Um, they were occupied about 32,000 years ago during a cold phase, wasn't a warm phase even, and they're not directly ancestral to Native Americans. They represent apparently a group that seems to have diverged very early, maybe as much as like 40,000 years ago, and then gets, gets replaced or whatever. Um, and contributes no more than about 20% um, at the most um, to the Native American genome. Um, the Native Americans uh, looks as though they are part of a group that diverged early and then was isolated somewhere in Northeast Asia or Beringia for some period of time. And then when we get this um, uh, climate warming and um, retreat of the ice sheets over North America, it looks as though the passageway has opened up initially along the coast here, and we get people moving into, uh, into the Americas into mid-latitude America. Okay, this has allowed us to ground truth all of these um, earlier um, estimates of the ages of these various lineages um, when they diverge from each other and so forth. Previously, it was all based on estimates, uh, based on some assumed mutation rates and so forth. And it's nice to be able to, to ground truth it with dated human remains that can be assigned to specific um, lineages. Okay, and then, let's see, as we've been saying here, we have during this global dispersal, we're moving into a number of areas that have never been previously occupied by humans. And then I want to turn to the, to the issue of, of the technology and the role that that plays in this dispersal. Recent hunter-gatherers, hunter-gatherer groups that, you know, were still around, you know, even, you know, 20, 30 years ago and certainly 100 years ago, made some very complex technology. Um, they made snares and traps, which meet the definition of a, of a formal machine, of a finite state machine. They built very complex um, fishing weirs and traps and so forth. They had other kinds of mechanical technology, fire-making drills, throwing darts, bows and arrows, all kinds of things. And some hunter-gatherers, particularly those living in areas where they were facing very challenging problems, of, such as the Arctic, made particularly complex technology. We'll see a few examples of that. This, this very complex hunter-gatherer technology is essential for places where plant animal uh, productivity is extremely low, such as the Arctic or uh, North Siberia, particularly interior Siberia. Plant productivity is extremely low there. There's very little to live on. First of all, the consumable, digestible plants virtually non-existent. So you're living off a diet of um, your hunting. And early, well, we know that early humans depended heavily on large game, large mammals, right? 
Um, recent hunter-gatherers um, could not survive in these types of environments without being able to broaden their diet and efficiently harvest large numbers of smaller vertebrates, birds, small mammals, and of course fish especially uh, in these interior northern environments, which can be harvested in enormous quantities if you've got the right technology for it. And then, of course, there are certain technology related to um, cold weather. If you don't have effective insulated clothing, uh, you're not going to last very long at all in environments where it's where the January mean is 20 degrees below zero centigrade or something like that. Um, that's kind of obvious. And all of these groups uh, in the north um, had developed various means of fire-making technology as well as complex uh, dwellings, uh, including you know semi-subterranean houses and all that sort of thing. And then navigable uh, watercraft. As deep sea fishing technology, we see we see some of this showing up. Evidence for this showing up as early as forty, fifty-five thousand years ago in Southeast Asia, um, and that seems to be critical for moving into the Pacific Islands and, and colonizing uh, Melanesia and ultimately Polynesia. Okay, so just some of the examples here of of this technology. So we said it includes a fair amount of mechanical technology, depending on which group you're talking about. These could be described as multiple state artifacts, okay? Um, and that applies not just to the self-acting devices here um, that, that don't require any human intervention to, to operate them, such as a snare or a trap, something like that, or uh, a fish, fish weir and trap system, um, but also applies to mechanical technologies such as just a bow and arrow or a bow drill or something like that, which requires, obviously, uh, interaction with the human body. But nevertheless, it's still a multiple state artifact. It has it occupies different different states at different times in its use. Um, and then also, I stress the importance of um, technologies such as the insulated clothing, which are very complex hierarchically, organizationally, structurally. Right? They break down into all of these different subcomponents and subparts here, related to you know the pants and the boots and uh, the gloves, and mittens, the hood, and so forth. And the the hood, if the hood and other parts of the, of the clothing are operated with drawstrings, which is sometimes critical, then it falls into the category of mechanical technology as well, of course. Yes, okay, so let's look at the record, the archaeological record then, for this complex technology. Um, I was asked about Denise of a cave earlier today. This is uh, this cave in, in the Altai Mountains in the southwestern part of Siberia that's been excavated for some years and has yielded extraordinary set of remains, um, fossil remains of, of not only these mysterious people, the Denisovans, uh, whom we know hardly at all in terms of skeletal remains, right? We don't, there's, we don't have a Denisovan skeleton. All we have is like a few isolated bones. But we know what we have the complete genome. And we have, we have complete genome sequences for uh, multiple Denisovans. I think at this point it's like six, seven, eight, something like that. So we know everything and nothing about them, I guess. But one thing that we have learned recently, and this is another, I was talking about all these fast-moving developments. This was published just a few months ago in Nature, although um, I heard it reported at a, at a conference in Washington last year. We have a new set of dates from Denisova Cave that show that the, the fossil remains of Denisovans, as well as Neanderthals, there are Neanderthal remains in there as well, predate the evidence of, of complex technology, which we'll see in a moment, by considerable amount, okay? The, those remains are dating to like, you know, 90,000, that kind of thing. And the complex technologies, which have been reported for decades from Denise Cave, are, are much younger. And they've been dated directly. There have been considerable improvements in radiocarbon dating techniques, both for bone as well as um, for wood. And it's now much easier to get reliable dates um, on very early specimens 
uh, we used to have this concern with even minute amounts of, of contamination uh, with something that's like 40, 45,000 years old because it's, it's reaching the point at which the half-life of radiocarbon is just about gone. So we have, we have a new set of dates here. And we now know that the um, the needles, which we have, uh, which we've been, which were recovered some years ago, and imply imply insulated clothing, sewing, and insulated clothing, are they're about forty five thousand years old. And um, we assume that those were made by modern humans. We don't actually don't have modern human remains in Denisova Cave. Only Neanderthals and Denisovans. But we now realize that those are much older, and that this stuff is much younger and is not necessarily associated with any any of the uh, any of the skeletal remains coming out of Denisova Cave. And it's I think it's a reasonable assumption that this is this is being made by modern humans. So we have so we have evidence for insulated clothing with uh, these needles from Denisova Cave, which now become the oldest, the earliest needles on Earth. We used to have, we had some needles from a cave in the northern Caucasus where I worked, Mesmyskaya Cave, which until until a few months ago were the oldest needles that we knew of. They were dated to about 40,000, but these are actually older. And then we also have traces of a high-speed rotary drill, looks like a mechanical rotary drill, on a number of, of pieces of stone. Bra uh, these are bracelets and, and ornaments and things like that, some fairly fancy stuff which indicates a mechanical drill of some kind. Um, I've illustrated here with a, actually a fire drill from a group in Alaska, um, but this presumably was uh, a drill that was being used simply to um, make jewelry, but it's the same principle. We also have, um, we have a fair amount of evidence for mechanical projectile weaponry from a number of different parts of the world. And uh, most uh, recently here, we have some stuff from Japan that was published a couple of years ago. This stuff is a little bit younger. It's, it's um, about 37,000 years old. It's a, it, it dates to a, a fairly warm period that follows an extreme, a period of extreme cold. And it looks as though during this warm period that um, people fled into Japan in large numbers. We have an enormous number of sites, hundreds of sites that date to this early time period in Japan. It's really quite remarkable. And we have evidence for um, what looks like bow and arrow from uh, the stone points here. And there's, there's, there's two lines of evidence here. First of all, if you're going to use a, a stone point um, on, a, on an arrow, on a mechanical projectile, it has to be a certain, it has to be a certain width and thickness, okay? If it's a big clunker, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work very effectively. And, um, we know from analyses of, of, um, arrow points versus, you know, like hand thrust spear points, uh, used by various recent hunter-gatherer groups, that arrow points inevitably fall into this, this, this very specific, uh, range in terms of their, their shape, their size and shape, in terms of the morphometrics. And so the points, these points from Japan fall into the, fall into the, uh, into the arrow point zone. But even more significantly than that, they have these characteristic diagnostic impact fractures, okay? Um, if a, if a point, uh, is smashed into a, uh, an animal, particularly if it hits a piece of bone or something like that, it leaves, a, it, it makes a very characteristic break or impact um, on the stone, uh, which you cannot, which you cannot get if you're simply, simply, uh, you know, uh, thrusting it um, on a handheld spear. Uh, so it's a particular characteristic impact fracture, and um, we're getting both of these on on these specimens from Japan. We have earlier work from the Levant, which suggests that at least in terms of the morphometrics, the size and shape, that we have arrow points or maybe spear thrower points. Uh, showing up in the Levant as early as about 50,000 years ago, towards towards the beginning of the dispersal out of Africa. And then turning to my own work, uh, Clyde mentioned I work in, in Eastern Europe. I work both in Russia and Ukraine, 
been working for some years at a group of sites on the Don River near the city of Varanya, just a couple hundred miles south of Moscow. It's the most, for me anyway, the most interesting group of, of sites in this time range, you know, like 30, 40, 45,000 years old. They're known as the sites of Kostyanki. Kost is the Russian word for bone. The reason why um, the, uh, the village is named Kostyanki is the mammoth bones have been turning up there for hundreds of years. In fact, Peter the Great knew about this place and was very curious about where all these mammoth bones came from. Of course, nobody knew what a mammoth was back then. And they thought it must be these must be elephants that from some ancient Hannibal type of army that wandered into Russia somehow and froze to death, whatever. But anyway, we've known that interesting things are coming out of this village for, for hundreds of years. And uh, we now know we have this, this remarkable concentration of these uh, sites with all of these multiple levels on them. And I've been working um, at these with a number of Russian colleagues for, for some years, since about 2001. And um, one of the things that we have here is um, evidence, indirect evidence for snaring and trapping of fox bones dating to some levels from the site of Kostyanki 1, which was the original site discovery, that go back to maybe as much as 36, 30, 38,000 or whatever that same warm period that I was talking about in Japan. We're deducing um, fox uh, snaring and trapping from the fact that we have, we have hundreds and hundreds of these fox bones. We have all parts of the skeleton, and we even have some examples where we have partial skeletons that are still intact that seem to have been discarded. The implication is, is that they weren't even interested in the meat, right? They were just look, they were interested in, in taking the furs, and, 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 and that's all. So that implies some kind of, some sort of, some kind of trapping, some kind of remote, remotely operated trap system. Even earlier than this, we have at another site, Kostyanki 14, uh, we have a massive, about 1,500 hair bones, again, like all parts of the, of the uh, skeleton, concentrated in a fairly small area. And uh, we even had various cut marks on these bones. In contrast to the fox bones, it looks like people were consuming the, the meat here, right? They were cutting them up. Um, but in order to harvest uh, so many hairs, um, I, it's reasonable to assume that they were using something. If, if not, if not snares, if not a trap line or something like that, then maybe nets. Uh, people, you know, using nets and group hunts or something like that. Some 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 means of harvesting um, these animals in, in large numbers. And these, um, this is somewhat earlier, dates to more than 40,000 years ago. It's buried under a volcanic ash that was deposited almost exactly 40,000 years ago. Um, and we have dates going back to uh, 45,000 on these levels. And then quite recently, I was just over in uh, Ukraine um, last uh, winter, about a year, last November, working on the dating of this site Kulachivka, which is in western Ukraine, near the city of Lviv. Um, I've been working on the chronology here and getting new dates and so forth, but I also was looking at blade fragments and point fragments, which um, look as though they've got these same um, high-impact fractures that we were talking about for the, um, in the Japanese case. So we may have some, some evidence here, mechanical projectile uh, weaponry, as well as morphometrics. I was uh, measuring these things, right, and they, were, they fit into, this, um, into that uh, narrow range there of, um, of arrow points in terms of their size. Okay, then we asked about Africa. All right, so we have from Africa, we have evidence also for snaring and trapping, for mechanical projectiles and so forth. That's somewhat earlier. It goes back to 60,000, even 70,000, maybe even slightly earlier. And it's almost all coming from southern Africa, um, which is interesting because uh, both the genetics and even the linguistics suggest that the subset of of modern humans that we are directly related to that, that uh, achieved this, this global dispersal after 60,000 years is originally coming from southern Africa. We have, so we have, um, again, we've got the same morphometrics here in terms of the uh, possible arrow points as well as these impact fractures uh, from a border cave, uh, let's see, no, not border cave, um, 
That's it's from Sibudu, uh, uh, I believe, a site where Paula Villa has worked. And then we also have um, from another South African site. We have um, evidence of snaring and trapping that's based on the analysis, again, of fauna remains, a number of different species in which um, we have a collection, large collections of bones with all elements of the skeleton, and we have, it looks as though they're being harvested in, in large numbers, which doesn't seem to be consistent with, with hunting them individually, um, but rather with harvesting them through traps and, and snares and things. And then this is a table I published a couple of years ago. This also is a work in progress here. Gradually, we're trying to piece all this together here. Look at these various different lines of evidence for different types of, of mechanical technology as well as hierarchically complex technology, uh, and then try to date it. Um, again, we seem to see the earliest examples in Africa and then, uh, and then younger examples that are sort of following this wave of modern humans as they move into Siberia. Yeah? No, it's 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 um, uh, the question was whether there's a quantitative approach to distinguishing between hunting versus snaring. No, there isn't. Uh, we can't, and we can't be absolutely certain that that we, you know we're that we have that these people are snaring. It's just that the um, in all these cases I've been talking about, the characteristics of the faunal assemblage are just not consistent with you know with 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 hunting um, because we're getting again we're getting these small elusive animals like hares or foxes or whatever. We're getting them in enormous quantities, and we're getting all bones of the skeleton and so forth, suggesting that complete carcasses are coming back. And it's, um, it's, it seems to be more consistent with, you know, with, with ethnographic patterns of snaring and hunting, uh, snaring and, and trapping. But it's, you know, we can't be absolutely certain about it. And I think that applies for, for some of these others as well. I, I, I would say that, the, you know, the evidence, the various lines of evidence I'm talking about here, some are better than others. Some are, some are, some are more, some are, uh, are, are more, uh, you know, rigorous and, and reliable than, than others. Okay, so, by any measure, the technology that we see after about 100,000 years ago, starting first in Africa and then spreading with, with modern humans out of Africa, uh, is more complex. It exhibits some significant increase in complexity. And the question is, um, this is the key question I, as far as I'm concerned, is what is the most appropriate measure of complexity? If we're going to compare before and after, um, what, is the, um, what, what is the most appropriate way, what is the most revealing way um, to measure the change in complexity here? And especially um, given the fact that what we're really looking for here, what I'm looking for here, is evidence of some kind of significant change in cognitive faculties um, that takes place that would that that um, gave people the computational power to to design and produce to design all this this fancy stuff here. Um, I want to go back just for a second. I haven't talked at all about the technology that precedes all of this high tech stuff, right? The most complex artifact that we have, most complex technology that we have evidence for before this change takes place are these composite tools, okay? This is something that's been emerging over the last uh, few decades. We have evidence for hafted scraping and cutting tools, that is, stone blades that were fitted to some kind of a wooden handle, sometimes with some kind of uh, glue or adhesive, uh, you know, like pine resin or even tar or pitch, uh, sometimes bound with, with, with hide or something. Um, and we also have these um, evidence for these stone-tipped spears. We don't have a single example of any of these types of artifacts. All we have is the stone. But what we have are traces uh, of wear on the stone that's characteristic of a wooden half. And we also actually have, believe it or not, traces of the adhesives. 
we have a number of different adhesives that have shown up. There are traces, little microscopic traces of tar and pitch and pine resin on a number of these, uh, these stone points and also these stone scrapers. But that's as complicated as it gets, at least as far as we know, up until about 100,000 years ago uh, in Africa. And of course, after that, after 100,000 years ago, beginning whenever it is, 80, 75,000 years ago, we start to see this, this much more complex stuff. Okay, so what is the most appropriate measure of complexity? Um, there are basically three approaches, at least that I'm aware of, that one might use three, three different basic measures of complexity for technology. Um, the first of these is the complexity of the artifact itself, okay, which can be measured in a number of different ways. The second is the complexity of the production process, all of the steps involved in, in making an artifact. Um, and the third um, is the complexity of the design process. Um, of, of how one gets to uh, how one gets to a, a, a set of production steps to um, to make an artifact where you you know already figured out how to do it. The simplest measure of complexity of an artifact is just simply to count the parts. This is an approach that was um, proposed uh, a few decades ago by a guy named Wendell Oswald. Wrote a couple of books about this, and um, Oswald. I mean, he had he didn't just simply you know count count the parts, you know, without any kind of, and he had a set of rules about, you know, how they were counted, whether two parts that were essentially performing the same function were counted twice and all that sort of thing. So he had, and he also, he didn't include parts that were, um, or features that were intended to be, you know, decoration or whatever. So he had various rules for doing this, but it was basically just counting, counting, counting up the parts. And uh, he called them techno units. And I have an example here of a, a spear from Australia, which has been broken down into, into nine different techno units. Okay, now, surprisingly enough, the, um, this approach, as, as simplistic as it is, is the most widely used in hunter-gatherer studies. And it does actually yield some, some interesting results. Some years ago, one of my colleagues in Australia, Robin Torrance, found that she got a, a fairly good, a fairly strong correlation between the number of parts, according to Oswald's count, and a latitude. Okay. It also, I found that it, 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 you get a pretty good correlation if you uh, use effective temperature, right, which is a special measure of temperature that takes into account the length of the growing season. Um, so there actually are some useful things. And the, um, uh, you know, the, the pattern is, is that, that the hunter-gatherers living particularly in, in very cold environments at high latitudes uh, have, make artifacts that, you know, are composed of many, many parts. Okay. They have their average artifact is composed of more parts than the average artifact, let's say, of folks like the Tiwi down in northern Australia or the Andamanese in uh, the Bay of Bengal. But it is, but it is a fairly, it is a, a fairly a, a limited approach here, and it's not doesn't doesn't really do, uh, it, it doesn't really satisfy the, the the questions I want to ask. I have suggested um, in a couple of publications actually that a more appropriate measure of artifact complexity, if you're just looking at the artifact itself, is to use Herbert Simon's measure of hierarchical complexity, okay? And we mentioned this before in the context of insulated clothing, right? That insulated clothing can be broken down into all these different subcomponents and so forth. The, the structural complexity, uh, oddly enough, this I'm like the only person who's been applying this, this uh, measure of, of complexity to artifacts at this point, but it seems to me that, that this, this, may t this tells you more uh, than just simply counting the parts. The other problem you have is that when we get to the production of artifacts, we find that there are some artifacts that are composed of only one part that have an incredibly complex production process, right? It goes through all these different stages of preparation, the material, and so forth like that. An example of that was um, my colleague in Germany, uh, Miriam Heidel, 
looked at these wooden spears, um, which are themselves rather remarkable. These are 300,000 years old from Germany, from a site in Germany, from Schernigen, and broke down the process of production here and turned it incredibly complex here. There's all these different subroutines and so forth. Um, first, again, spears that were being made by uh, early, early uh, Neanderthals uh, in Europe. So it's just a reminder that, again, counting parts itself is, is, it really doesn't help us, uh, I, I don't think doesn't really help us much at all here. The counting of, of looking at the production steps, that is measuring the complexity of an artifact in terms of, you know, of the production process is something I also, I've, I've looked at in another context here. Um, I've suggested that we can usefully apply some models and concepts from computation theory here. If we think of the making of an artifact as a, as a computation in which the input is the original raw material, the output's the finished artifact, and then we go through a series of transitional states here while we're making the artifact here. The, these are the production steps or the transitions or the, the functions or whatever. We can apply, you know, some of these classic models out of computation theory, you know, like context sensitive parameters and push down automata and all that sort of thing. And we can look, if we look at those, um, the most complex artifacts that precede modern humans that we mentioned a few minutes ago, the hafted scrapers and so forth, we can see that the process of making them is, is more complex than, say, just making a simple stone scraper or whatever. Um, it actually involves processing uh, hierarchically organized strings here, right? Because you have, there's a separate set of production steps for each one of these parts uh, that you have to go through. And then you have what would be called a context-sensitive production rule here. Uh, when you assemble these parts, because you obviously can't assemble them until you have completed all the three separate um, production sequences. It also requires some working memory, right, because you have to have to keep track of where you are in the process um, since you don't have any obvious reminders of, of where you are in terms of, a, in terms of the artifact itself. And so we can, you can apply these various concepts of both time and space complexity, right? Space complexity refers to the amount of available memory, either short-term memory or long-term memory, and time complexity uh, refers to the uh, the number of steps or the in in computer science it's you know just how long it takes to to uh, to run a particular computation, which ultimately breaks down to the number of of of, of individual computations uh, or steps transitions. Now when we get to even more complex artifacts when we get to stuff like the insulated clothing or the you know complex fish traps and so forth. Um, then we need something even a little bit more complicated here. Uh, we need some kind of a computational model uh, or computational system here that will produce a, a complex uh, structure. It requires all sorts of separate production rules and that fire at specific points in the process. And the appropriate model here, I think, is the so-called Linden, Lindenmayer system, which was proposed in the 60s by this, this botanist, uh, Aristide Lindenmayer, um, who was uh, wanted to... Um, Generate a model for plant growth, um, and uh, he wanted to he wanted to show you know sort of whether the underlying mathematics involved in producing in, in in making developing a plant growing a plant right, um, which involves all these uh, these hierarchically organized steps here and again sets of production rules that fire at specific points. Okay, so you talk about memory. You're talking about people learning from people who know how to do this uh, through imitation. There's no, uh, at that time, there's no method for recording? Well, we don't, we don't really know, do we? I mean, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know where language begins, 
we assume that there was some sort of primitive or simple language, you know, at some earlier point, okay? Because we do begin to see a little notation uh, with modern humans. We don't before modern humans. Okay, so we finally we get to the, the complexity of the design process. And I said, as I said at the outset, I believe this is the most appropriate and revealing measure of complexity here. Um, it's not the, the, the production process itself, but it's the process potentially very complex process of, of arriving at a set of production rules to make a particular type of artifact once you've figured out how you're going to make it, once you've figured out what the design is. So it's what I'm referring to here is the computational complexity of, of the design process. The key point here is, is that the more complex the artifact becomes, the more complex the design process becomes. And the relationship is such that as the artifact gets more and more complicated in terms of hierarchical levels, subcomponents, and particularly moving parts so that it has multiple states, the alternative design possibilities uh, grow exponentially. And they very rapidly become enormous. Um, and that's, that's, I think, the key, that's the key point, really, that I'm trying to make here. Well, and I'll, I'll talk about it some more. Um, Okay, there's there's a whole body of, of, of literature in engineering, as I discovered. I didn't know much about it a few years ago. But there's a whole body of, of literature in engineering, both theoretical and applied, uh, concerning the process of design, how you design uh, you know, artifacts, how you make you know how you design widgets or refrigerators or whatever. So there's a lot there's there's a lot there's a lot of literature here that uh, on this subject. In my view, it can much of it can be applied to hunter gatherers. We we simply we simply look we're simply looking at at um, different kinds of artifacts. Obviously, different materials. We're talking about working with wood and hide and stone and so forth, rather than metal and plastic or whatever. But I think the principles are are the same, and we can apply a, a great deal of this this engineering literature to it. The process of design is it's obviously it's a non-deterministic process. It's a creative process, right? Because we don't know you know we're trying to make something new, so we're we're trying to solve some particular problem. We, and we don't know how it's going to come out. We also, we know from experience that with virtually everything, like such as a, a chair, there are all kinds of alternatives. There are many different alternative designs. Some of the designs are better for certain functions than for other functions. Some of the, some alternatives are totally worthless. But, but there's a, there's a great variety, there's an enormous variety of potential alternatives here for almost, for anything, really. And it's, we know, we know that the design process is basically a heuristic search, right? You're searching among all these different potential alternatives for something that's, 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 go, that's going to solve the particular problem that you're trying to solve, which, you know, again, maybe it's, you know, harvesting rabbits or killing a bison or something like that. Uh, you know, you're trying to solve a problem and you're looking, you're searching for, you're searching for design solutions. It's a learning process. Uh, the the the, uh, the hunter gatherers we were talking about, and of course ourselves included, have acquired a great deal of, of knowledge, right, about how things work and how to make things uh, over the course of the last sixty thousand years. And it's been through this constant heuristic process of searching for uh, among various design alternatives and learning what works and what doesn't work. The the process, the, the this heuristic search process, is. It's a form. Of, it's a special form of computation, a non-deterministic form of computation, that is that is usually described as evolutionary computation. And evolutionary computation is is based on the idea that implicit in Darwin's natural selection theory is a is is a computation. Okay, that let's say using an example here, population of rabbits that is facing a cold phase or something, mean annual temperature is being reduced. 
one of the solutions to that problem of, of retaining you know, body heat is to simply grow the size of the animal, right? Because then the, the, the volume, the ratio of volume to surface area is reduced. Um, that's known as Bergman's rule in, in biogeography. And it explains why we have, why, you know, hares in the Arctic are enormous. I don't know if you've ever been to, I've been to Greenland a few years ago, and I, the hares there are like, they're the size of, of dogs, right? They're enormous. And uh, whereas if you, you know, um, down in Arizona or whatever, they're, they're a lot smaller. Okay, so the process of, of, and we've seen in the fossil record, we can see that the body size of hares is like foxes and bears and everything else uh, changes. It, it, it increases and decreases according to, according to the um, past climate change. And it, we can look at this as a computational process here in which the input to the computation is uh, mutation and recombination, right? Varieties, alternatives, alternative uh, options, uh, which are expressed in terms of a uh, you know, range of body size in, the, in a population of rabbits. Some rabbits are going to be smaller than other rabbits. Selection process then becomes the, essentially the function for the, for the, 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 uh, the, that acts on the input and selects for, for larger rabbits. And then the output, of course, is a change in mean body size um, that's adaptive. So that's, that's you know, biological, evolutionary biological computation. Um, the, the whole field of evolution computation is, is filled with different variations on this, right? This, this developed um, in three different places in the 1960s. These are sort of the three main strains here, original evolutionary computation. An example is uh, for John Holland in Michigan developed this, uh, this genetic algorithms idea. He just um, died last year, I think. In the 90s, um, these were all synthesized, and they founded a journal called Evolutionary Computation um, and uh, recognized that despite the differences, there were some fundamental, similar fundamentals here. But the point is, what I'm trying to get at is evolutionary computation, it's a large, diverse field, partly because of its multiple origins here, multiple evolutionary origins. And um, there, are, there are all sorts of different ways to do this. And the uh, engineers who have, taken, who have uh, used what is basically an evolutionary computation process to uh, model the heuristic search process of, the, of formal design um, are, using, are using a variant of evolutionary computation. And it differs in many ways, obviously, from the bio. I mean, obviously, we don't have mutation or anything like that. It's somewhat different. But it's still fundamentally a, a heuristic search that involves a certain amount of random input and uh, a range of searching among a range of alternatives for, for something that's suitable. My, my inspiration in all this has been a, a couple of guys, uh, engineers, um, they're based in Israel named uh, Braha and, and Maimon, um, who published this, this uh, tome a few years in the late 90s here, which has really become my Bible. Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's just devoted entirely to the subject of formal design theory. And uh, the reason why I like these guys so much is that, is that they think, I mean, they, they deal with very practical issues. They work on software design and, you know, and they consider questions of designing, you know, metal fasteners and all kinds of, you know, very mundane stuff. But they think of it in terms of computation theory and, you know, Shannon information and all this kind of stuff, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, so they, they're constantly thinking in, in, in much broader theoretical terms. These guys have discussed the, the pro formal design process in various ways. They've broken it down into um, you know, these kind of basic elements, uh, like a computation here. And the key here are these transformations here, uh, because the process, again, is dynamic, right? You're searching among alternatives. You're selecting particular alternatives for some reason, hopefully, that they meet the, the specifications that you're searching for, again, to solve some particular problem. 
And so I, they, there are many examples that um, are used in, in, in their book and also in their individual papers here. And I, I picked a particularly simple one here, which is just a mechanical fastener, uh, which is actually it's a single component artifact, I guess technically, isn't it, according to Oswald. But I think for all practical purposes, it can be broken down into several different parts here because these obviously are free to vary independently. So they're really like separate parts. But anyway, this is a, a fairly simple fairly simple piece of technology here, okay? And the idea here is that we're not necessarily inventing the first mechanical fastener, but rather that we're making some change. The, the fasteners that we have available, for some reason, are not suitable for the particular problem we're trying to solve. They're not big enough or strong enough or whatever, uh, and so we need to modify the design in some way in order to uh, meet the new specifications. Um, okay, so it turns out that the process of redesigning a mechanical fastener here is you know, it's rather a complicated process right here because we have to look at all these different alternatives for the drive head and the 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 tip and the the um, the other parts of the, of the of the faster the few parts that there are um, and it's kind of it's a it's a hierarchical process here which we can takes a while to go through all the different alternatives here the point that these guys make is that if you're going to measure the complexity of the design process of a particular design the most appropriate measurement here is information content based on Claude Shannon's definition of information um, because that applies to all of the possible alternatives, right? Shannon defined information in terms of all the possible alternatives. If you're going to send a particular message, the amount of information contained in the message is related to all the possible alternatives that your message could contain. Uh, for instance, Clyde was telling me how to get here this evening, right? And he said, you know, to go to 3100 Downing Street. Okay. So supposing he just said, uh, we're on Downing Street. I I'm sure you'll find it, you know? Obvious that would have been a message with, you know, fairly low, fairly low information content, right? But fortunately, he gave me the number, okay? It could have been, obviously, the alternatives here are, you know, in the, a couple, in the hundreds, I guess, for Downing Street. The message he gave me was, was fairly high in information. Shannon, of course, is the reason, some of you recognize this is the Ludwig Boltzmann Memorial here, right? With Boltzmann's um, entropy formula up there. Um, Shannon explicitly was applying the entropy formula to his definition of information um, because it relates to in all the possible um, the comparison here or the metaphor or whatever was all the potential microstates of a of a of a of a, of a, a bunch of gas particles. The it applying this to to design to the design of an artifact here. What they're getting at here is that the, the, the complexity of the design process here needs to be evaluated in terms of all the possible alternatives. When we look at all the possible alternatives, even, even with something fairly simple such as this mechanical fastener, that is a measure then of the, of the, of the complexity of the design process. This comes down to, and this is I guess my, my key point here, is that as the structural complexity, or the organizational complexity of the artifact increases, the, the design alternatives um, expand exponentially, right? And in fact, Braha and Maiman have got this, there's a whole section in their book in which they start looking at complex artifacts and how you design complex artifacts. And they have a theorem in there in which they're arguing or proving or showing, I guess, that for very complex artifacts, the problem is actually intractable. The design alternatives are so immense that it's, you know, what would be called NP-hard, right? In theory, there's an answer. To the, to, there's a solution to the problem, but by the time you've run through the calculations, by the time you've considered all the alternatives, you know, our sun will have expanded into a red giant and has swallowed up the planet Earth. 
um, because it would take so long. So one of the, I mean, one of the points here is that no, you know, there's no way that people just suddenly started making this stuff, right? Sort of jimmying this stuff together here in, in, the, in the course of a, like a few years or even a few generations. Presumably, this more complex technology was developed over an extended period of time. Um, that must particularly apply to Africa. I mean, that's one conclusion. And presumably, it was done in in a hierarchical manner, right? In which certain, certain you know, some, certain pieces, certain aspects of the make of the design of clothing were learned first, okay, and then gradually other parts were were added on as the as the design alternatives for those were explored and eventually eventually discovered what worked and what what didn't work. The other point here is I've been referring here to structural complexity, but when we get to the mechanical artifacts, again, we're talking about multiple state artifacts that also potentially expands all the design alternatives, right? Because the design has got to work for the artifact in all these, these different states. You're not just talking about, you're essentially talking about artifact that changes through time, right? In terms of its use. Um, so it's complex. One of the things about, um, you know, my, my colleagues, my engineering colleagues here, is that um, all of the examples they're using are the context here is like you know, post-industrial engineers, right? These guys are professional engineers. They're working with computer software. I mean, not to mention being able to you know scribble scribble calculations in the back of an envelope. But they can run through all of these you know computer-aided calculations and so forth. And so when they talk about alternative designs, they're really talking about several alternatives, all of which might be you know workable. Maybe one, you know, some would be better than others. Perhaps one of them would, you know, get us closer to, you know, the optimal solution uh, for some particular part of, a, of an artifact. But they're, you know, they're considering, they're actually looking at a, probably at a much narrower range of alternatives than, you know, our, our friends, you know, like 60,000 years ago, who had never, obviously had never made a machine before. And uh, we're, we're exploring these technological issues for the first time. And one assumes that there was a lot of trial and error and that a lot of stuff didn't work very well. The potential complexity of the design process here, my guess would be, is immensely greater for this context, this context of hunter-gatherers 50,000 or 40,000 years ago than it is for, you know, a couple of guys in a lab in, in Tel Aviv, you know, working with uh, some computer software uh, design for a, a new metal fastener. And then another thing, it seems to me anyway, and this comes mostly from my from my older son, who actually has a far better background in all this stuff than than I do, is that we're also when we get when we talk about these mechanical artifacts, we're talking actually about dynamic systems here, not static systems. And it seems to me that in order to um, to get a workable design for something like a even something simple like a rabbit snare here, what you really have to do is undertake some form of causal analysis here, in which you're figuring out the relationships here between the different parts and how they interact with each other. I mean, basically, you're sort of discovering basic mechanics, right? And um, so there's again, there's a whole ex extensive literature here on causal analysis. Um, I'm particularly referring to Judea Pearl stuff here. And I've, what I'm doing here is just kind of following along what Pearl, what Pearl's approach to causal analysis and trying to apply it again to hunter-gatherer technology here. I've put together a simple structural model, which is his approach. Pearl's usually is approaching problems like, you know, does tobacco cause cancer or whatever. So he's looking at all these statistics and going through this process of causal analysis, in which he's trying to, he intervenes, right, in a system like that, when you're looking at, you know, uh, public health or something like that, obviously you don't have a control system, right? So you have to, you have to, it's, it's, it's impossible really to control all the variables the same way one would control them in a lab or with, with a control system like a snare. 
Um, so it's actually much more, much more difficult. But the basic idea, it seems to me, is the same. And that is, that is trial and error in which you, one is experimenting with different aspects of the system, playing around with it, seeing what works and what works, what doesn't work and what works better than, than, than something else. That seems to me that causal analysis, although I don't believe Pearl has, has acknowledged this or pointed this out, is a form of evolutionary computation. It's the same thing. It's also heuristic search. Um, okay, so, all right, so here's my major conclusion then. All right, that we have a major increase in complexity and that the increase in complexity is most dramatic in terms of the, the implied complexity of the computational complexity that underlies the, the design process here. And that we get this big jump, really it seems to me implied quantum jump here in terms of computational complexity when it concerns um, artifact design. So this suggests, it seems to me, uh, some kind of significant change in cognitive faculties that took place. Something that isn't necessarily showing up in the in the anatomical features, right? Or maybe it is. Well, I'll get back to that again. The first observation we would make, I think, worth making, is that if we've learned anything in the last 50 or 60 years in computer science and artificial intelligence and so forth, it is that computation is a physical process. Okay, it's impossible to have any computation, including when you're you know thinking in your head without some change in, you know, in energy or matter. Okay, there has to be a change that takes place. There's some physical change. And I've cited uh, Feynman here. Um, there are a whole bunch of, of general texts on computation theory. My favorite is Feynman's book, which was published posthumously by one of his students. Um, because uh, Feynman, of course, was a physicist. And he thought, he constantly thought in, in terms of physical processes, and he relates a lot of computation theory to, to physical, to thermodynamics and other, other physical processes. Um, so, okay, if we have this, this major change, this quantum jump then, in the computational complexity of the design process, some really major change in, in computation, uh, in computational power, then we need, we have to account for this, okay? We can't just assume that, you know, people are, you know, kind of approaching things differently or, you know, thinking in a different way or something like that. There has to be some physical basis for this, what appears to be a massive increase in computational power. Um, the most obvious place that a paleoanthropologist would look would be brain volume, right? Because brain volume does increase very dramatically in humans. We start off about two million years ago at basically the ape level, and then brain volume essentially triples by the time we get to modern humans. So there's an enormous increase in brain size. And remember that you're measuring this in terms of numbers and neurons, but the what's really changing here is the potential for synaptic connections. That increases exponentially with the number of neurons because every neuron has potentially up to a thousand synaptic connections. So if you, obviously, if you double the number of neurons, you have a much greater increase in the number of synaptic connections, and that's where the information is stored. Okay, so my point about brain size here is that, is that, that, that clearly cannot explain this major change in computational power, because brain size essentially levels off before we see this big change in, in technology. And it, there's actually, amazingly enough, there's actually a decrease. Um, brain size actually has gone down a little bit uh, in the last 50,000 years. So brain size is, is, is not, you know, doesn't help us out here at all. The other possibility is you asked about nutation. Okay, so we do have some evidence for notational artifacts, very simple, you know, artificial memory devices and so forth, going back at least as much as like about 40,000 years. This is from South Africa, from um, uh, Border Cave. 
Um, this work that Paula, Paula Villa, my colleague Paula Villa was involved in, spoke here, I guess, last year. Um, so it's possible that we are, you know, we are seeing, you know, some, uh, that we are having some, you know, external cognitive aids here, okay? But the evidence for this is it's very limited. It's also somewhat problematic and ambiguous. And we don't actually know what, what these notches mean, whether they really represent some kind of notation or whether it's, you know, just somebody notching a bone. It's, it, it, it seems to me it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of a, a, a um, thin basis for, for what seems to me to be a, a much more profound change. I would get back to um, the evidence that we have for this delayed maturation and this expanded growth and development, which I mentioned is, um, goes back as much as 300,000 years to some of those earlier archaic modern human fossils. I think that if we're looking for some really major change here, my suspicion is it's, it, it's related to this or maybe related to this, um, and that it in turn is, is related to related to language and to, and to learning and memory. And I think it's essential to put this into a social context because I think if, there's, if you're looking for a really big change, it seems to me that the, the, the most parsimonious explanation for it is that what we're getting is some kind of much more effective integration of the, the social brain, okay? Because all of the computations that we're talking about here, they're all collective, right? Nobody, we don't have an individuals who originally designed a trap or snare, something like that. It's, it's all collective. And it's, it's, it's collective computation both in space and time, right? Because what is being learned is being passed on to the next generation. And so we're talking about ultimately hundreds and finally thousands of generations here. As well as 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 as, as a great many uh, a great many contemporaneous brains that are interacting uh, in a social context, even in hunter gatherer society, and certainly in in modern society. I've just been reading Walter Isaacson's um, book that he wrote a few years ago on um, computers, which is really interesting. It's a really interesting book, and I noticed that um, Isaacson's um, the main theme in the book is is that all of the major developments. Um, in computers, in programming, and hardware, and so forth, um, have been essentially collective enterprises. And that, in fact, he picks out particular examples of people who were working essentially on their own, who, who, you know, who never quite made it, right? Who sort of dropped out and didn't really contribute significantly to the, to the, um, to the overall development of the computer. And um, I, you know, so I was struck by that when I was was thinking about this. Okay, so just to sum up here then, I think first of all, I think this, I've been talking about evolutionary computation. Um, to me, it seems that this, the whole concept of evolutionary computation is potentially uh, an overarching theoretical framework for the evolution of all living systems. And we can think of, of the evolutionary process as being a computational process on all these different levels, right? Prokary the prokaryote genome uh, versus the metazoan brain and so forth. And I would point out that when we when we get to uh, modern humans after 100,000 years ago, and we have evidence for machines, we have jumped to a new level of computation. Okay, because a machine performs a computation on its own. Even something as simple as a rabbit snare is performing a computation on its own and represents a, a new level of of computation in the grand scheme of the evolution of living systems. I also think that evolutionary computation presents potentially a unified theoretical framework for humans. For ourselves, because we can also think of language has been approached, has been approached at least by some some linguists, as a form of evolutionary computation. And in fact, I think we can fit everything—art, music, everything—is um, can be seen as a as a as some form of evolutionary computation. Again, with this constant um, kind of creative input, right, from the brain, 
our brain, the individual brain, which is capable of considering all sorts of alternatives. Uh, and then when we combine that with the group brain and we take it over many generations, we have all sorts of people working on the same issues, the same problems, and so forth. The computational power is ultimately is immense. And the potential input, the, the, this creative input is, is, is enormous. So I think you can apply, I think we can apply this to really to all, virtually all aspects of, of human culture. We also, we mentioned again looking at these different levels of evolution computation. As I, as I said before, um, it seems to me that those, even the, the simplest examples of, of machines like snares and, and fish traps and so forth, um, meet the formal definition of a machine and they represent potentially a new level of, of evolutionary computation. It's deterministic, of course, right? This is a deterministic machine as opposed to the, as opposed to the human brain or even oppo as opposed to, you know, the hair population, right? We're just getting all this random input. But we're, but we're getting there, right? We're getting to the point where we're, we're approaching artificial intelligence or whatever. And as a matter of fact, we already have computers that, you know, can generate random numbers and so forth and, and can do creative things. So we're slowly getting to the, to, to, to an evolutionary computational point with, with our machines. And then I have for this, particularly for archaeologists here, right? We've been arguing for decades among, uh, I've been arguing with my archaeological colleagues here over, um, the question of what is the most appropriate archaeological signal for modern cognitive behavior, modern cognitive faculties. And for years, the focus has generally been on symbolism, on the evidence for art, uh, even just simple geometric designs or whatever, but particularly on representational art as being the, you know, the key um, signal for, for modern cognitive activities. I still think that's basically true, but I would point out that the evidence for, for this complex technology and the implied complexity of the underlying design process um, has a much, much greater visibility in the archaeological record. Okay, it's, we can find this earlier, we can find more of it. Um, we can, again, we can track it across uh, Eurasia, out of Africa, and so forth like that. So from an archaeologist's point of view, I think this makes, it makes more sense to use this as our, as our, as a key archaeological signal. And then it seems to me that um, the this whole question of of, of evolutionary computation, um, not just for art, not just for technology, but also again for art and other things, gives us a sort of a, a research design for the investigation into modern human evolution and dispersal. Because as I said before, there are many different varieties of evolutionary computation. The first question I guess I would have is what exactly what exactly what kind of evolution computation is it that humans are doing? And does it vary from group to group? Does it vary from you know individual to individual? It seems to me this gives us a, a framework for investigation um, in the context of evolutionary computation. There was a um, an excellent um, article in an archaeological journal a few years ago by my colleague Bob Bettinger out at UC Davis, um, who looked at the range of alternatives um, in, for artifact design among several different groups and found that there were major differences, that there were some groups that he was looking at, um, Native American groups from, you know, like 2,000 years ago in the Great Basin or whatever, who were apparently, uh, who were playing around with a wide variety of different designs for, you know, like projectile point heads and other things. Uh, and there were other groups who found that were actually, that were consistently uh, narrow, using a very, uh, a very narrow range of, of potential designs. Um, and um, that, that's the kind of thing that 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 I'm that I'm referring to here in terms of, of how we might investigate this further using this this framework. And that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. So you're saying that social collaboration may have been one of the major 
factors influencing jump in, in cognitive problem solving? I, yeah, I mean, I, because it's clearly so important today, right? And it's um, it's also important if you look at descriptions of of um, hunter-gatherer groups of people you know who traveled around with various groups in the past. There, at least I find that you know there's there's a, there's abundant testimony to um, the, the constant kind of collective input of the group uh, making these decisions as a group and so forth. Um, and obviously, they, you know, they, they, come, they come up with better answers uh, if they're doing it as a group than they would as individuals. So, I, you know, that's just an observation. And I guess what I'm suggesting is if we're looking for this, you know, a major jump, if there really is this massive increase in computational power, you know, that's one way to explain it as simply a, a you know, more effective integration of the group through, through language and, and learning and so forth. Because the you know these like these other alternative explanations like an increase in brain size or or notational equipment or something like that um, you know just don't don't seem to don't seem so it's to work. A gradual process. Well, maybe it wasn't so gradual. You know, I mean, again, I assume that there has to be some some time period of development for for these technologies, right? Because I've been emphasizing how how difficult it is to to put these complicated artifacts together and how much time it must have taken because there's so many alternatives to consider. But you know, they just—I mean—they just sort of pop up in the archaeological record. They just suddenly appear. At this, I mean, we may find evidence that they're older than than we currently think. Maybe we'll find evidence of them—you know, 100,000 years, 150,000 years. But at the moment, they're just—they're simply popping up uh, in southern Africa with this subset of anatomically modern humans. You know, about 80, 70,000, 60,000 years ago. And then again, they're—you know—they're they're spreading. So you talked about a quantum jump. Yeah. Is that? What you're referring to now? Yeah. Does this, maybe on a small scale, I don't know, have anything to do with uh, punctuated equilibrium? Ah. Uh, because it talks about quantum leaps. Yeah. Uh, a gradual approach. Yeah. I, well, um, but I, the process seems to me here is, is, is quite different. Yeah. I, would, I, should, I, I should point out, um, you had uh, my colleague Paula Villa here. When was that, Clyde? You were saying that was that was before my time. Oh, yeah. I, uh, Paul was my colleague at, up at Boulder, and I should, for those of you who were here for her talk, I, I don't know what what she was talking about. Well, I mean, we've, we've been friends for many years, but we have diametrically opposed views when it comes to Neanderthals and modern humans. And Paula very very much represents, I think, what is the majority view. What I've been telling you tonight is very much a minority view. Most of my colleagues disagree with this, with what I've said. Most of my colleagues, including Paula, would argue that the differences between the Neanderthals, you know, and presumably Denisovans as well, and ourselves were, were not that great, and that, that these the differences have been, you know, greatly, even grossly exaggerated by various archaeologists such as myself uh, over the years, and that there's that there's there's all sorts of evidence that we can find among uh, in the Neanderthal archaeological records certainly for you know complex behaviors and evidence for complex uh, you know, cognitive faculties. So I, you know, I'm, what I'm presenting is very much a minority view. The only other, one of the few other people who articulates this view is my former PhD chairman, professor, who gave a talk just a couple months ago at, uh, at CU Denver, uh, Richard Klein. Um, okay, uh, Professor Klein also uh, very much uh, an advocate of, of this view that there is a that there is a major change, a massive a quantum jump in cognitive faculties that takes place, you know. Uh, just before modern humans leave Africa. Yeah. So I read the book Sapiens a couple years ago, uh -huh. and it talks about this cognitive revolution 60 to 7,000 years ago. Right. And his his concept is more than linguistic. Right. 
you know, linguistic, imagination, fiction type stuff. But so my question was, his book's not well footnoted, you know, what he references. Is that concept of a cognitive revolution, is that going mainstream now? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with, you know, I'm familiar with the book and I, I agree entirely. Um, with with what he's saying in there, that's I mean the author is um, you know he's not, not terribly knowledgeable about you know Paleolithic archaeology and all this kind of stuff, which actually probably probably helps him. Um, but um, the his basic ideas are, to me make great sense. And and the thing is he's um, you know who else is um, inspired by that book is um, Judea Pearl, whom I mentioned uh, as the you know as a as a leading um, specialist in in in, ca in causal analysis. And in fact, um, Pearl has written, he wrote a book, it was just out last year, I think, in which he talks uh, quite a bit about the book Sapiens and quotes the author and, and, ar and, and argues basically, I guess what I'm saying here, that, um, that there's this major change and it's related to language. And Pearl talks about language as essentially being causal analysis, that that's what language is, a form of computation, and we use it in order to, you know, to figure out what's going on, what's happening, and also to predict, you know, what's going to happen. And so I, what I'm, all I'm doing here, I guess, is just sort of applying all this stuff to, to the technology. Yes? This is going back to, or looking at more recent human history, but how does your uh, idea, if it does at all, sort of dovetail into the Jared Diamond um, idea that you know, humans in different parts of the world were more, quote unquote, successful, were able to dominate because they had, um, they were in geographically diverse areas, some of which had more resources where you could do X versus this group, which couldn't do X, or this group could only do Y, and this group, you know what I'm saying? So, that, yeah, but, I, you know, I don't... It's I, sort of an accident of geography, in a sense, is what he says, but... It seems to me it's more complex than that, right, because we have we have people who... You know, we have places like Japan, whatever, which doesn't have much in the way of natural resources, right? Which nevertheless developed, you know, this, this you know, major industrial civilization fairly early on. And then um, I'm trying to think of some examples. Um, I mean, I suppose we also have some people living in some areas where resources are very rich that, that didn't do much. I mean, I, you know, it seems to be much more complicated than that, right? Just the, than just the natural resource base. It's obviously it's what people do with it, and it's it's hard to explain why some people. You know, have developed you know all this art and literature and technology, and others did not. I had a question about the Denisovan caves. Yeah, you were saying that the Neanderthals and Denisovans both were there earlier, much earlier. Yeah, surviving in that cold climate. Yeah, but you didn't see evidence of the needles or the. No, no. The the I mean, they what what's what um, my colleagues have been doing. It's Oxford just done this new set of dates. Um, they've been specifically dating the artifacts themselves. The problem is, is Denisova Cave. Well, I mean, or any cave, you know, it's 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 sediment that's contained in this this rock chamber, right? And so when it if it's in a cold region uh, where you've got extreme temperatures or whatever, you know, the sediment is constantly expanding. And unlike an open air setting where there's some room for it to expand, there's no room for it to expand in the cave. So what happens is it crumples up. You get this cryoturbation. And uh, this it's a, it happens in any cave that's in a cold area, and you know we knew this before, right? And so there was this uh, argument of it going on for some years as to whether or not you could necessarily draw conclusions about the associations between the Neanderthal and Neanderthal fossils on the one hand, and the needles and the fancy art and all that kind of stuff. 
And uh, so I, some of us, anyway, suspected all along that, you know, that they were getting mixed together um, due to the cryoturbation, and that's what the dating seems to have, have nailed down. Um, the Denise and Neanderthal fossils are, I can't remember, they're dating something like 90,000 or whatever, um, and the, um, the, the fancy artifacts, again, are dating to about 45,000. And we have we just got a couple of the same group from Oxford dated this uh, human, modern human bone from western Siberia from a few hundred kilometers away, actually a higher latitude. Um, which dates almost exactly the same, about 45,000. Um, and that's one of the earth, and it's one of the earth, going back to the lineages, we didn't, I didn't talk too much about this um, after the beginning, but it's um, one of the basal Eurasian lineages, right, that ties back into their, um, of the maternal lineages, the two Eurasian basal lineages are M and N, and then um, and R is the daughter lineage of N, and this bone in Siberia was, um, belonged to lineage R. So it was very, it was very uh, one of the early earliest Eurasian lineages. It ties back into L3, which is Africa. When you have a chart that shows a correlation between latitude and pregnancy, I can imagine that sort of thing being abused for racist purposes. So I guess my question is, how do you think is the best way to address the fact that this is a proxy for? What is like? It's sort of like the Cambrian, right? Like we only get the fossils, and so how? How? What other proxies, I guess, could be taken in to like show potential for intelligence and complexity? Well, I, I mean, the thing is, I, I mean, you're talking to somebody who believes that you know, we're all operating at the same, you know, with the same cognitive faculties, and that the the technologies. The technologies are being developed again to to answer specific problems, right? And so we have the the Tiwi. I mentioned the Tiwi, who are a group that that lived in a um, on an island in northern Australia. So they lived in a paradise, right, where there was abundant food, and it was easy to get, and they hardly needed anything uh, in the way of technology, right? And then you know we have people living in northern Greenland who you know you I mean you, you can't do anything without this complex technology right it's, a, it's there's almost nothing to live on that's easily available right you have to go out and hunt whales which means you know you need you know deep water and you need big boats and harpoons and drag floats and everything so it's I mean it certainly doesn't tie into race right because we're talking we're talking about Native American groups here I mean we looked I mean of course you know brain size has been used as brain size varies according to latitude right so brain size has been used for racist purposes in the past right but the irony would be then that the okay then the most brilliant people then would be Native Americans living in Greenland right because the people who have the largest brains the largest skulls are the northern Greenlanders so obviously that didn't fit with the you know racist assumptions, but I don't, I'm not, again, you're talking to someone who, who you know, who doesn't, I, I mean, I don't, I don't see any evidence for, you know, any fundamental differences in cognitive faculties, and the, tech, the, the technology entirely seems to me relates to, again, the problems that people are trying to solve, and some people, some people live in places or lived in places where they didn't have any problems. Well, Australia was way down there, yeah. but obviously they had some sort of complex navigation system. Well, and also the—I mean—the thing is, the 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 Australians actually have some fairly sophisticated technology. Um, I mean, they, you know, they've got mechanical projectiles and so forth. They have snares and things like that. So the um, some of the Australian groups have got some fairly. I, I mean, one of the things is is that I mean, we talked about the the fallacy of using you know just counting parts and stuff as a measure of technological complexity. Some of the more complex mechanical technology is only composed of few parts. Uh, I mean, a snare. I mean, the optimal solution to the to making a snare 
is to make it, you know, of course, out of as, as few parts as possible, make it as quickly as possible. And you can make a perfectly good working snare, which people in Australia and also in Southern Africa do, out of just like three parts. And uh, the, another thing the Australians did was they move around a lot. And uh, one of the things that they did was that they made this ingenious stuff where they would they would they would combine all these different tools into one into one object. They have, they would carry this board with them. The people in the Western Desert, and it had like about ten different functions. Right? It functioned as a functions as a throwing board. It functioned as uh, they used it for they mixed paints on it. Um, I can't remember all the things to do with it, but anyway, it was so. It was this? It was you know basically it was one artifact, but it had it had all these different functions, and you could just and you just carry it around with you. So it was very convenient for people who were you know doing a lot of walking. If our ancestors never left Africa, how would that have affected evolution? Well, I, I guess the answer is I, I don't know, but I, I mean the thing is, well, I, okay, here's the interesting thing: earlier humans left Africa repeatedly. Okay, this happened over and over again. We, we mentioned as many as like three different dispersals of anatomically modern humans out of Africa. But there were all these earlier dispersals as well. I mean, that's where the Neanderthals originally came from. They came from a group about a half a million years ago in Africa. Same with the Denisemans around the same, out of the same group. Um, before that, you know, there's Homo erectus and um, um, Homo ergaster. Um, there are the uh, there are other earlier migrations into Europe and other parts of Eurasia. Um, so this process happened again and again. Now you might think that what had happened in evolution in human evolution was that every time a group of humans left Africa, they went into these other these you know environments where productivity was less or was cold in the winter or something like that, and they had to deal with all these they had to adapt to all these new and sometimes difficult conditions. And that, and then, and they somewhat advanced. You know, their brains grew bigger, or whatever. They, you know, they, they, they grew more sophisticated technologically, or whatever. But that didn't happen. That isn't what happened. Uh, what happens is, is that um, each each time these groups leave Africa, they go. You know, they adapt to whether it's you know Europe or Asia, something like that. And then they eventually get. They seem to get replaced by the next group coming out of Africa. All the changes taking place in Africa. All the critical developments. Um, and if you want, if you're looking for some general, um, um, you know, trend or process that's driving the change, particularly in brain size, um, my guess is it's, it's 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 social competition, it's social life, it's not the it's not the technology. Um, brain size starts to increase at about two million years ago, as you saw in that chart, and it just keeps going. It goes on and on and on for you know almost two million years, and then it levels off. It gets to the point where the brain can't grow anymore. It's too damn big, uh, and you can't. Well, like, you have there are, there are fossils in Africa that have essentially modern brain size that are half a million years old, and you know as I said, I mean we actually we, there's actually been some, something of a decrease because the people who who left Africa six thousand years ago had brains that were on average were bigger than ours. Um, so we actually, we've actually, there's been some reduction, but you know, the brain is expensive. I mean, in terms, you know, metabolically or whatever, uses up an incredible amount of energy, and it's also hard to. Uh, it's 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 a thermoregulatory problem. If your brain is too big, it's um, you know, it gets too hot, and this is particularly a problem in in tropical climates. Okay, that's why brain size is larger in at higher latitudes, right? It's just simply it's a it's a cold adaptation because you know, bigger skull is 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 um, you know stay, stays warmer, right? Because again, you're increasing volume to you know to the ratio of volume to surface area. It's that same rule I mentioned earlier. 
And it obviously has, it has nothing to do with cognitive faculties, right? I mean, we have a great deal of variation in human cranial size, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have much to do with, with cognitive faculties. To support this leap in complexity, still begs the question, well, how could you, what could make it happen? What could be behind it? And I'm rolling that around thinking, still with our, our, the brains in mass still just slowly plugging along, and you have the outlier, you know, the, the Einstein. I, I understand relativity now, but it took some guy to dream it up. The heuristic search. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, okay, so I really haven't talked much at all, really, about what, what might have been driving this change, right? Um, I did mention the, um, this, uh, the evidence that we have for, uh, delayed for essentially a modern human, uh, process of growth and development with this very long childhood, extended childhood, and this long critical learning period for language and also for other things. I, I, I going back to what I was saying about, um, social, Social life driving the um, the size of the brain, um, which is, I mean, if what I presented tonight is something of a minority view. The idea that um, social competition and social interactions are driving brain sizes is a is a, is a popular one in paleoanthropology. Um, it's known as the, like the social brain hypothesis, um, and the idea is that um, from two million years on. Um, we're dealing with, um, there's a major change that takes place in terms of human foraging. And we, sh we, sh we shift over to, um, first of all, there's much more hunting going on. Um, there's, people seem to be operating in, uh, people are operating in groups where they're foraging over larger areas. Um, they're, first, they're expanding into places where biological productivity is lower. And therefore, in order to, you know, bring in the same amount of bacon, you have to cover a much larger area. So there's a major increase in, in foraging distance and in the challenges of foraging. And that's, and, and, and that's, and there, there are multiple lines of evidence for that in terms of diet and the way the, the sites are organized and so forth. That's when brain, the brain size starts to grow. And when we get this, and we get this continuous growth, the brain's, the brain just keeps on growing and growing and growing. So the hypothesis is, is that it's this constant competition among people in every human social group because the group is compo is not composed of people who are closely related, right? Um, it's because of exogamous mate exchange, the, you know, the average, the coefficient of, of, of relationship within the group, the average coefficient of relationship is actually fairly low compared to, say, you know, chimpanzees or something like that. And so what happens is, is that people um, form alliances, friendships, okay, in the group. And I mean, we know what we know about hunter-gatherer groups. It's, it's it's a group of families, right? It's families that get along together, right? And then when you know one family starts to they don't get along so well with another family, they they move out of the group and they try to find another group or whatever. So the group is this it's this group a group of related families who have this 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 complex social web of of alliances and also rivalries, right? Because there's always there's subtle rivalries and competition going on. And so we get this, we get this very complicated social life, this soap opera, right, which is the main theme, I guess, in, you know, literature and so forth. And the idea is that that's what's driving this, 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 this complicated social life with having to predict, you know, how people are going to behave and what your friends are going to do and what your spouse is going to do or might do or might not do. That the, that, that because, because the, the computation, the social computations are so complex, 
that that drives the size of the brain. And it just keeps on growing and growing and growing. And at the same time, the shift over to a heavy meat diet is providing the energy source that you need to grow and sustain a, a large brain, which again is a very expensive organ to maintain. And then what happens, it seems, about you know, half a million years ago or whatever, is that we reach a plateau where the brain just can't get any bigger. It's reached the maximum. And it actually, it, 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 there is a point there at about, you know, whatever it is, 200,000 years ago, in which the brain seems to be, it, it's still growing, right? We get very large brain size in even tropical populations. Uh, we, get, we get brains of like, that are like, you know, 1,500 cubic centimeters out of places like, um, you know, the Sedan or whatever. And that's, that's, that's really not sustainable um, in terms of thermoregulation. It's also a problem for the birth canal. And so I think, you know, that's the point at which we see this dramatic change. And my guess is that it has to do, it's, it's, it, it has to do with what is an alternative to growing brain size and at the same time meeting the demands of this complex social life. And that is to increase the learning period and, um, and to increase the, the integration of brains, to increase what you can do with language um, as a system of computation. It's all these substitutes, it seems to me, uh, for a larger brain. Um, that, that are coming at a point in which the brain just simply cannot grow any larger. It's reached the limits. Thanks. Thank you. Hi, Jesse here again, and props to you if you made it all the way to the end. I know this was a long episode, and let me tell you, it was fun to edit. Oh boy. Just to finish up on the science talks and other similar hub events, one of the best perks of going to an event like this is going out for drinks afterwards, which is exactly what several of us did. It was a smaller group than I've been to at some. I think it was just because this one was held on a Sunday instead of a Saturday, so most people had to go to work the next day, so there wasn't as much appetite for going out after kind of a long hub event. But... For those of us who did, it was very nice to sit at a table and share a, a meal and a drink with, with some of our other hub members and with Dr. John Hoffaker, who had spent a lot of time with us and spent even a little more, and it was just a really fantastic evening. So if you enjoy this kind of thing, then you should definitely come on down to the hub and give it a try. So this is Jesse. If you have any feedback for me or anyone at the hub, please email podcast at secularhub.org. Or just come on down sometime and we'll see you there.